Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP. Recording live from FYP Studios East and West, transmitting across the internet. This is episode 288 of Registry Matters. And I would say, how are you this evening? But it's not evening, Larry. It is a Sunday afternoon because you had schedule conflicts and made life challenging. But really, Sunday would be really fine in total. Make sure you go over and like and subscribe on YouTube and leave five-star reviews if you have that option and all that stuff. If you're new to the show, you can not only find us on YouTube, but you can download the show as a podcast and listen in your favorite podcast app. And that'll show up on Tuesday in your feed. If you're a patron, you'll get it as soon as I finish editing it and all of that. So. With all of that in place, Larry, what are we going to do this afternoon? We're going to do a little bit of this and that. Fantastic. Let's get going. So we have a guest from the great peach state of Georgia. I think he's been with us on previous episodes. And, he has. And uh, we have, uh, he's from the Narsal Affiliate, Restore Georgia. And he's going to talk about a client of theirs that is interested in international travel. He was once himself on the PFR registry in Georgia and was removed, but he does appear on another state's website. But oh, shit, not that's a, does not. He does not. Oh, I'm, no, he does. Uh, never mind. Uh, never mind. You keep reading. I'll stop editing on the fly. Keep so, reading. Well, well, the guest does not appear. We're talking about the client of Restored Georgia. Correct. So I'll clarify that. But you'll be driving the bus on that, and then we have a question from one of our supporters dealing with interstate compact issues, and the main event will be a Supreme Court decision from North Carolina, the North Carolina Supreme Court. And we were going to talk about don't talk to the police, but I don't see that in there. So I suppose we're going to put that off to another episode. I don't think there's enough time. All right. All right. Well, then joining us is going to be Brandon from Restore Georgia. He's been here before at least once. Do you remember? Is it once, twice, 10 times? I think it's been twice, but thank you for having me again. So yeah, give us a rundown. What's going on? All right, so here at Restore Georgia, we get emails all the time from our constituents, people with questions. Um, so we recently had someone who asked us via email about international travel and how, inter- how international megas law applied to this person. Uh, the person was convicted in a different state some years ago, moved to Georgia, and then a couple of years ago, he successfully came off the PFR registry in Georgia, but he still shows on like the other state's website. So, like, a prime example is if the person was convicted in Florida, moved up here, and still shows on their website, but has no duty, no <laughs> obligation to register or check in with Florida. Um, so, the person does have a passport and without the IML marking, but I was afraid what could happen if he didn't notify anyone of their pending international travel, which is a good question. You know, well, if they wanted their... It, it doesn't stop you from traveling. You, this person wants to travel internationally, go spend time, see the world, you know. So, um, what could happen if they don't report their travel? So, like first, so that's pretty much where we're at. And so, when they emailed you, what did you go do first? Then, yeah, first I decided to take a look at what IML stated in public law. Uh, it's public law one fourteen dash one nineteen. So, which defines people how, defines what's required, who's required to notify, and how the all the various information is transmitted to the various agencies. And so, the PFR, in theory, the PFR would notify their local PFR office. Uh, the local PFR office would then notify the U.S. Marshals Service, who would then pass the information on to the DHS Angel Watch Center. So, the Angel Watch Center is the the organization that certifies the individual as a covered PFR, and then they would notify the Department of State if they that that person needed a marking on their passport. So the U.S. Marshal Service also then transmits the notifications to the destination country via Interpol notices. And so, as as you've already said, the person is not on the registry in Georgia. So, what if what happens if you're not required to register in your local jurisdiction where you reside or work? And what if you were and uh, in this person's case, they were removed from the registry. So, who do they go register? Who do they go announce this travel with? 
Exactly. It's who do they go to because they're not lo- required to register locally. So I, us as an organization, we have contacts in our state, our county reg- PFR offices uh, with the county or state officials too. We, we can, I say, hey, I've got this client who I could ask this question about. So my first email was to someone who worked in the local PFR office. And, it, and I knew this person had been there for a couple of years. So we have a good working relationship. So then this person was a longtime staffer, not a law enforcement officer. So, and I thought that why, was important. Why is that important to you? So law enforcement officers, I find in the counties, they rotate jobs after like a couple of years. They'll say, they, let's say they work in the PFR office for like two years, then they're gone. You're not going to get consistency, but some of these, they keep staffers on for years upon years. And that's all they do. So they know the laws in it better than some of the law enforcement officers that work in that office. All right, um, Larry, let me ask you a quick question. So why wouldn't you go ahead and call the the office of the federal duty to register for international travel or something like that and tell them that you're going overseas? Well, I'm not familiar with that office of uh, federal duty to <laughs> register, but. Sorry, what? I had to be snarky there, I couldn't resist. My, my general philosophy, and for those detractors out there, this is my personal philosophy, is that you don't want to call attention to yourself. And if you've been registered in Georgia, for example, I would bet there's a good chance your passport was captured by the PFR registry in Georgia and scanned a long time ago. And it's probably already in that bureaucracy. But if, if somehow or other you escaped that and you never actually provided a passport to them, it's not in there. When you call any federal government agency, you're asking to have your passport flagged, in my opinion. I don't know how you could call, and I don't know how they could do any research if you didn't give them identifying information. They're going to ask you a little bit about your name, date of birth, and certain information. And if you're not flagged, you've just flagged yourself. So that's why I would not personally make that call. Yeah, that's what we do we, as an organization. I don't mind making those calls on behalf of the persons and even in further phone calls that the people I talk to are receptive to that. They understand that too. And so then Brandon, why wouldn't you just call the normal law enforcement office? Uh, so like I, uh, my methodology is trying to get answers from different sources. And so I like to, like, I, I like getting the law enforcement answer. I also like to get the attorney's uh, some attorney's interpretation as well, as long as well as my interpretation, and find commonalities around, so we can make a, a good solid determination of what could happen. So, but like when I, I have a good, since I have a good working relationship with this staff member at my local county office, um, her response was she couldn't answer that question because she didn't know. She knew the person was removed from the registry requirements of Georgia, but convicted in a different state. And she gave me another number, which is to like the U.S. Marshals uh, Service with a phone number. Can, can you do me a favor? Can you cover that one again and, and slow down and, and say it again of what the answer was? Okay. The answer that was provided to me was, I cannot answer that question since this person was removed from registry requirements in Georgia, but was convicted in another state. I would have this individual call the number below for more information, in which they provided me a number to the U.S. Marshal Service National Sex Offender Tra- Targeting Center. I'm wondering, does that mean that, so I, like, so there's no place in Georgia for this person to go register with? I mean, exactly. That, that is at least one part of this answer. Whether there is yeah. a, another office to go register with, that would be what would come next. That is correct. Um, this person, like if they, this person tried to go report their travel, the local PFR office wouldn't be able to do anything with it. So the, the staffer's recommendation was, hey, call the U.S. Marshal Service and see what would need to be done, because they didn't really have an answer. <laughs> this is going to start turning into a circle jerk of call this office, and then they tell you to call that office, and you end up back at the first office eventually. Yep. Um, so then what happened after that? Did you did you happen to reach out to that uh, 202 number in D.C.? Actually, I did. I left a, I called the number, uh, press one for like international travel and press one if you're representing a PFR or are the PFR. So I just pressed one, left a voicemail, said, hey, can you please call me back? You know, I didn't explain the situation over voicemail. I just said, hey, just please call me back. Um, 
But in the meantime, while I was doing that, I said I actually sent an email out to the Angel Watch Center, and I got an automated response, which is a pretty lengthy automated response, which describes out what the international Megan's laws is and what are the requirements. And one of the things that stood out to me was says, quote, additionally, per international Megan's law, individuals who have been convicted of a covered sexual offense against a man minor and are required to register as a sex offender in any ju U.S. jurisdiction are subject to the passport marking provision. So this portion told me that there are two requirements if, if in terms of IML. You need to be uh, convicted of a covered sexual offense against a minor and have to be required and are required to re register as a, as a PFR in any U.S. jurisdiction. And with the word and in there, that means exactly. A and B have to be true before you have a marking on your passport. That is correct. That's a conditional statement. If one and two. If either one of those two don't, this is what I was thinking at the time when I got the email back saying with this with this statement, if one or two, well, it's got to be one and two, not one or two. So, and but then I, I waited for that phone call back for the U.S. Marshal Service, which came actually came a day later after the email. Did you see the part where it says if you would like to self-identify? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which if you wanted to there, if you want to <laughs> self-identify, you can. But I, 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 I did not want to out this individual. I did not want to. I just wanted to get I had questions. You know, I didn't want to out this individual and flag this individual. So, Larry, would you? God, I don't even want to ask you the quote-unquote legal interpretation question, but do, would you interpret that the same way? Well, therein lies the problem here. I interpret it the, the way if it were going to be my skin on the line and are required to register. I interpret that to mean if you're actually actively required to register. Right. And required is not the same as would be required. If this person were in those states, even though they may have a residual life of their previous registration information still carried on the register on that state's website, that is not a current duty to register, in my opinion. Now, my detractors, I am entitled to have an opinion. It's just not a legal opinion. But if you ask me if I would get a particular surgery, even though I'm not a surgeon, I can tell you, no, I don't think I would do that. My my opinion is, as a layperson, that if you would be required to register in that jurisdiction and you were where you were you were in noncompliance, that would apply to you. So if he were required to register, I think it's North Carolina we're talking about here, or Florida, whichever the two it is, if he were actually within a zone of being required to register and was choosing not to register, that would be one thing. But since this person has left Florida or North Carolina, they don't have a duty to register, although they're carried on the website. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't addressed this issue. They would be the final person that would determine the final authority. But I don't think this question will ever reach the Supreme Court because the practicality of the way it's being enforced now is consistent with what our guest has said. If you are not actively required to register there you have no duty because you have no way to report it there's no entity in fact in pre-show the guest told us that they said if you come in here and try to report it we will not take this report we will not file it we have nothing to do with it is that correct that is correct sir the, the staffer in my local county said we i can't do anything with this information i can't submit it because you're not actively registered in the local jurisdiction so so I would believe that the practicality of trying to enforce it, the people, it's well known to the, to the government who is required to register because two things happen. You're listed into the National Crime Inf Information uh, Center system as an active registrant when, a, when an agency registers you. If you go non-compliant, you're still listed as an active non-compliant registrant. If you've been deregistered through a process, 
they deactivate that registration much the same way they deactivate a formerly active warrant. If they didn't deactivate a warrant, you'd be picked up every time you encountered the police, even though you've already been arrested, made bond, and been sentenced and served that time 12 years ago. So they do the same thing with a formal registration. My opinion is, based on everything I can gather from dealing with law enforcement in my state and in my capital and in other states, is that once you're deregistered from their system, if, if you go through a process of being, whether it's timing out or whether you've been released by court order, they deactivate that registration. You're no longer in that zone of what the law des describes. Now, a lot of people worry about the website. They say, well, I'm still on the Florida website. Well, you're not registered in Florida. Larry, you're so stupid. I'm on the website. You're not registered in Florida. And we go round and round and round. So if you want to believe you're registered in Florida when you're listed on the website, you can choose to believe that. And you can choose to have an imaginary fear. But you're not registered. You're listed on a website. God, the hate mail is going to come first to the end of the year. It's already starting in chat, Larry. But I'm on the website, someone says. It's already started. <laughs> so if I could just be smart enough to understand that the website is the same as the registry, but it isn't. And I, I get that everyone's fear about that. But then when I got the response back from the U.S. Marshal Service via phone call and we had this conversation regarding this individual and their response was, quote, if you do not have a duty to register in your local jurisdiction, then you, you, then you do not have to report your international travel. And if you do not have to, a duty to register where you reside, then IML does not apply to you. That is consistent with what the two, the three administrations have interpreted because practically it's, it's not practical. The law may be written in such a way, and I won't argue that. It may be written in such a way that you can interpret it. It applies if you've ever had a conviction. But the practicality is you can't really enforce it that way. So they're choosing right now under three successive administrations from Obama through Trump through Biden to enforce it to people who are actively currently required to register not theoretical people who might have a duty to register yep and i mean we even went over case in terms of people being left out on the state website in florida and that's what this staffer at the u.s marshal service said he said they do not have to register if they don't actually live there or be actively have to register in that in florida that they don't have to report their local travel their international okay, yeah. travel. Now, now, maybe make sure this straight. I got to say this again. So the they they don't run the state websites when they're deciding who to whose passports to mark. Are you telling me that they, they don't pay any attention? The marshal himself, one of the marshals, told you that they don't pay any attention to the website. Basically, they, pay, they want the active registered. They want the they want to know where you're actively registered at, not where right. if you have residual stuff. Well, so, well but, but that's what I'm trying. To, that's what I'm trying to illuminate here. They don't use the website to determine active registration status, according to the marshal. And I've been saying that for how long on this podcast, Andy? How long? Uh, I mean, 288, so. <laughs> and we did take a little bit of an extended break this year instead of other years. So, They're using NCIC like, like everyone else does. Yes, that is the logical place to go because you're either in compliance or you're non-compliant. But when an agency register you, registers you, they put it in the NCIC. It's in one of the many person files. I think there's like 15, 16, 17 different person files for active supervised offenders, warrants, gun permits, on and on and on. They put you in one of those those files. And when you're no longer actively registered, you go into an inactive status if they've done things correctly. And you're no longer a registered person. Folks, try to get over it. A website is not active registration. It's a humiliation. It's an unfortunate thing. I wish we could do something about it, but it doesn't come close to being actively registered. And I'll definitely follow up when this person comes back from the international travel and shows you that nothing happened, you know? So we'll, well, we'll give you those follow-ups. Say, hey, look, there's no fear. If, if you want to travel, travel. Well, now, that we don't. totally, I can add something to that, That and there's even somebody here in chat that probably would uh, attest to this, that you'll have more problem coming back to our shores then you will going there I, I think he had one problem going somewhere but uh generally I, speaking from the people that i've heard that did international travel they had more problems coming home than they did going to where they were going i've heard that as well and so i mean and if you know if you're confident in what you know and all the all the laws that apply to you or don't apply to you you know you can definitely navigate that those troubles on the way back what were you going to say larry uh 
I was going to say, we don't know that nothing's going to happen because my fear would be that this person's passport has previously been entered as a part of the registration process. And I think J. Edgar Hoover taught the FBI a long time ago that they don't destroy any information that they have. So if sure. it was entered into the NCIC, scanned into a law enforcement database, this person may already be flagged. But but what I'm saying is that is a separate issue. We can't undo what you've provided to law enforcement while you're registering. We can't change that because you're not going to get it back from them. But what we can do is accept the fact that you're not registered and you're not covered. But that doesn't mean when you get back in the United States, if if American law enforcement is uh, dealing with you at reentry, they might still know that you were a former PFR and they may still break you over the coals. We don't know that. Right. right. Um, was there anything else in here that you wanted to cover, Brandon? No, sir. That is it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate, I appreciate you doing all that legwork. That's fantastic. It's really funny to have uh, a whole bunch of people saying that they experienced this, they experienced that, but you actually kind of went to the mat and got the details that says, if you have a minor related crime and a current duty to register in a work, uh, school or living situation, then you have to deal with this. But like, if you don't have both, then it doesn't apply to you. And that, so that's really fantastic. And I appreciate that information. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Thanks buddy. For, Take care. I'll talk thanks. to you soon. All right, well, let's get rid of him and we will move on to the actual good stuff, right? Oh, that was good stuff. That was really good stuff. I appreciate him doing all of that. That's fantastic. Um, let's move over to a question that came in and it says, Thank you. Let's see. And I, it just says Searly in Solidarity. I don't know. I don't remember who this is, Larry. You put this in there. I don't know. I don't have a name to reference is what I was looking for. He you have one? Want to, he didn't want to be referenced. Okay. So we'll just call this person John. John wrote in and says, I thank you for the information you provide, especially useful. The Illinois and West Virginia cases verifying a total ban on social media is unconstitutional under Packingham when a person has not committed a crime with a computer or the internet. I get questions all the time and comments where people believe they can just leave the state interstate compact agreements and that the harsh laws in Indiana cannot be imposed on those who leave. They believe that once they leave Indiana, that the state they are going to cannot and or will not enforce Indiana's registration, uh, excuse me, requirements that the registrant be subjected to more stringent requirements between the state they are moving to or Indiana's laws. Can you clarify these types of clauses and explain them better? In other words, Indiana parole requires that the registrant comply with Indiana's laws in the receiving state if Indiana's are harsher and, uh, than that state's law, or if they are harsher. Is this accurate, legal, enforceable? I know you recently clarified federal stuff in the October-November 2023 issue and stated, if you relocate to a state that has more lenient requirements, that state's requirements will be applied. But I don't think this is correct for someone on supervision. Can you better explain this? This certainly came in from um, the Narsal Digest feed kind of stuff. Yes, this is one of a, a prison jailhouse lawyers, and he writes regularly. And this is very nuanced, and we've been dealing with this for years, and you even still profess it's confusing. It is! It drives me crazy. Okay, well... I'll try again to make it as simple as possible. <laughs> oh. Registration, generally, with one or two exceptions, is solely in the hands of the state you're living in. Totally disconnect registration from any of your supervisory requirements. Registration is going to be dictated by the state or jurisdiction that you're living in. If you go from Vermont, and you go to Florida, you can't say to Flor Florida's law enforcement that I only had a 10-year uh, uh, annual paper report that I had to mail in. That's all I had to do, because that is not binding in Florida. Florida will take over as the regulatory arm of the registration requirement. And whatever Florida tells you to do, that's what you will do in terms of registration. If you want to be subject to Vermont's, you stay in Vermont. And to me, that's so easy because it's like your vehicle. 
your personal vehicle, if you take your vehicle from a wide open state that doesn't do emissions inspections and you take it to, to uh, New Jersey where they're tightly compacted like sardines in that state and they're very conscientious about air quality, you can't say that I only had this requirement in Arizona. So that one should be easy to understand. The, the regulatory scheme will be whatever the state has. So far, so good, right? Totally. Then you get into the punishment scheme. When you're sentenced for the commission of a crime, you're being punished. And I use this over and over again. Wouldn't it be a great country if you could extinguish your punishment by moving from one state to another? Wouldn't there be an awful lot of interstate movement if you there could would do be. that? Yeah, you could just you could state shop who has the easiest time to get off. So it would be a fantastic system if you could do that. So if you just apply a little bit of logic and say, hmm, Alabama imposed a 25-year supervision period on me. Now, I can go to Vermont because I don't think anybody ever gets more than 10 years of supervision in Vermont. Therefore, I'm going to be off in 10 years. That would be such a fantastic system that Vermont would be overrun with criminals. Because who wouldn't want to get out from under supervision? I keep struggling with that word. Who wouldn't want to be out from under supervision faster? So when you apply logic to it, then you realize that that's illogical. The punishment is being transferred to the state, whether or not they would have imposed it. It's being transferred to the state through a process that's called interstate compact, which is, in essence, a treaty between the states. And the state that is taking over your supervision has agreed when they signed that treaty that they will honor the terms of that punishment that was imposed by the state that imposed it. And that includes all of the punishment. That means if that state says we want you to do X and it wouldn't have been a condition in Vermont, it goes with you to Vermont. And your term of supervision follows you. Special conditions follow you to Vermont. So your, your punishment will be like Indiana parole conditions. If a person thinks they're going to escape Indiana parole conditions by going and leaving Indiana, they're just flat wrong. Their parole conditions from Indiana will follow them to wherever they go. Now, how religiously and zealously a state enforces conditions that they might see as less than appropriate, that's another question for another episode. But technically, those conditions go with you. So you will not gain any advantage by going state shopping. You might even gain disadvantages because the receiving state can impose additional conditions as long as they're not inconsistent with what they would uh, impose had you been convicted there. Now, that doesn't mean that they can lengthen your punishment. If you come there with five years and they would have given you 20, they can't make it 20. It's still five years. But if you come to them and you didn't have a curfew and they typically put curfews on PFRs, they can do that because that's a special condition consistent with how they uh, would supervise an offender who was convicted there. You may end up making yourself even worse off by moving. Now, that would be funny when you do that. Can you agree with that? We need to, we need to have a conversation about what, we, what you and I define as funny. I don't see why you couldn't admit at least that would be funny. If you go state <laughs> shopping and you make your life worse, that's not funny. What would you classify it in your vocabulary? I don't think that's funny if you make your situation. Not for the person that's living it anyway. It might be funny for everyone else. <laughs> so uh, hopefully that long diatribe helps clarify it. I'm going to actually answer this in the legal corner for Narsal. I like the question. We have some variation of it all the time. But if you can disconnect registration from the actual sentence, it will be a lot simpler for you. And then when you apply the logic of wouldn't it be a great country if you could extinguish your conditions and your punishment by moving to another state? Wouldn't we have a lot of U-Haul traffic if that, if that were the norm? You just can't do that. Can you also say to extend it to accept that your supervision stuff is going to be different than your registration stuff? Those are two very distinct situations. Absolutely. Your, 
people tend to combine them because when they're in court, part of what's pronounced is that you will comply with PFR registration because they have a duty under Padilla versus Kentucky to apprise you of those collateral consequences. And they associate that with the sentence because it's in their probation order most of the time about the duty to register and comply and keep current. But it's not an actual part of your sentence. It just isn't, except in screw-up cases where they actually put it in. I have seen, I've gotten arrogant a couple of times and told people, well, it wasn't a part of your sentence. And I've been shown a JNS where it was a part of the sentence. Okay. Uh, where they actually put in the specific period. They shouldn't have done it. They did it. And if you can show me one of those, then I, I'll magically flip on you. And I say, well, great. You've got a contract that you've made with the state. If they specified a particular term, a representative of that, that state being the district attorney, duly authorized to make deals on behalf of the state, has made an agreement with you. And your plea was contingent upon that agreement. But most of the time, if you read it carefully, it's not a specific term. It says you're notified of your duty to comply with registration. That's what it actually says in 99.9% .9 of the plea agreements that people say, well, the judge said I'd have to register 10 years. Show that to me. Maybe maybe twice someone has shown that to me. I gotcha. All right, here we go again with interstate transfer stuff. We should, uh, we should like keep a hit counter of how many times we have covered ICOTS. Okay, Ready to move on from there then? Yeah, let's do it. What have you got here? Well, I, I added this one just today, so you're, you're not uh, privy to this one yet. But this one was on the YouTube channel. It says, um, <clears throat> I got to turn on my angry voice. Here's the problem with getting off the registry that everybody wants to do. In 40 of the states, if you move to that state, even after getting off the registry, you will have to register with them. Uh, have to As the law states, if you have ever been convicted of, you have to register in that state. And like my home state of Wisconsin, my residency restrictions are written as if you have ever been convicted of. So even after I deregister, I can't go to parks, libraries, even the movie theater is listed. So really, getting off the registry is no relief. Abolish the registry. I certainly agree with the last abolish the registry part. I wish we could do that. But I disagree with most everything else because getting off the registry certainly would improve your quality of life, uh, even in Wisconsin, because you're no longer within a zone of pros prosecution. You're no longer having to make disclosures. It's a passive thing. It's a passive part of your life have been formally registered. I think he's right about the things about the way the statutes are constructed there. If you've ever been con convicted, you may still have these uh, disabilities following you. But honestly, how often are they enforced? Who do you know that's actually been prosecuted, who has been removed from the registry? It probably has happened, but it's not very frequent. But I agree with getting off the registry. I disagree with him, about, rather, about getting off the registry. There's no, no, no benefit. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that the $100 annual fee would no longer be assessed if you were able to be removed from Wisconsin's registry, if there is a process that lets people off there. I agree uh, that when you move to other states, you may be within a zone of registration again. But as I have said many times, you may move to another state and go the rest of your life and never have a problem unless you incessantly call the PFR office. <laughs> if, I mean, you may technically have the duty. And I'm not advising anybody to take any particular course of action. But the reality is, whether I give you advice or not, if you go to another state and you've been dutifully removed from registration, I challenge this audience, as well as any other audience, to show me an instance where a person who has been validly removed by a process or they've simply been terminated by the passage of time, which happens in some states, show me a person who's been terminated from registration, who has moved to another state, and has been prosecuted from fail for failure to register. I am not aware of it. I'm connected with the national defense lawyers, the state defense lawyers, and I'm not aware of that. In fact, we have seen evidence to the contrary. We've done episodes of people who have relocated, who have been deregistered, not that far in the past, where they were just simply told that you actually do have a duty here. We have no evidence to justify 
that paranoia, although it's reasonable. It, the law may say that, but it's just not done. So is, is it safe to say that if you are in your state and you deregister, like that would be the end of it unless they change it? But for at least for that time window, you are safe? Is that at least fair to say up to the start of this? Well, I would say you're, you're as safe as you can be. Now, the residuals of, of any private websites may still exist, yeah. and, you know, but you're not within a zone of prosecution. And that's the big one because the penalties in most of the states, this counts as a habitual offense. So therefore, you may have a prior felony or two, and you may be looking at lifetime for failure to register. And I don't know why anyone can sit there and, and keep a straight face and tell me that when they're facing prison for failure to register, no longer having that threat facing them is not an improvement in their life. I must be more retarded than I ever realized that I am. Because I can't see how you can keep a straight face and say that no benefits derived from being deregistered. And so if you, so in my case of being off of the registry in Georgia, I'm done with that. Were I to locate, relocate to somewhere else, and they have that in the, on their books of saying that if you have ever been convicted of, that's not the same. I think the way Georgia has it worded, I believe they say, if you are required to register somewhere else as opposed to this other language that this person is writing about, if you have been convicted of. Well, that statement would still be true for me. So if I go to one of those states, I would then have to go to the PFR office and declare myself. You would have that decision to make. I'm not saying you would sure, have sure, to sure, go. Sure, sure, sure. I'm with you. you. If you went approximately 90 miles across to Alabama, they yes. cover you if you've ever been registered, ever had a crime. I mean, if you've not if you've sure, ever sure, been sure. registered, but if you ever had a crime, you remember the McGuire case. He had never been registered, even in Colorado, where he was convicted. But he went in and said, hey, 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 I've got this conviction from 1986 or 1989, and I'm now living here. What do you people think? If they had found, <laughs> if they had found Mr. McGuire there, being that he had never registered, all they would have done would give him the notice to register, which they gave him at the PFR office when he showed up and said, please tell me if I have to register. Why do you want to impose the worst thing that can happen to your, yourself? If that's the worst that's going to happen, is they're going to tell you you've got to start registering. In my mind, the safest thing to do would be to wait and see if they ever tell you that you need to register. I mean, again, I realize I'm not playing with a full deck, but to me, I would rather wait until they find me. All right. Are you a first-time listener of Registry Matters? Well, then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app, hit the subscribe button, and you're off to the races. You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F.Y. And now, Larry, we're going to cover this North Carolina case. Why, um, why, do, you, why do you want to cover this case? Uh, well, uh, because I found it interesting because I read it 47 times just to make sure I had it all worked out, ironed out, and I could recite it, basically. Okay, well, before you start, I think the name is pronounced Fritchy. Oh, I, I think it, that would just be Fritch. This is just my it, opinion. I think it's a German name. I think it's Fritchie. But you That's can why I would think it it's just however you like. Man. Okay, so to whom it may concern that your last name is Larry Fritchie or Fritch, we apologize up front. We're doing the best we can with our single language of English guiding us here. All right. This is the state of North Carolina versus Larry Fritch. Or Fritchie. Larry says Fritchie, so I'll go with what Larry says. That way he can be wrong and he directed me. We've spoken about it and you are having heart palpitations, Larry. 
since you found out about it. And what's this case about? Oh, this is the one you told me about from uh, a particular individual that didn't yeah. know about it, but that individual knows everything. Yes, that is correct. It's a case that determined whether or not North Carolina must provide credit for time a PFR has been on another state's registry. A person is eligible to petition for removal after 10 years in North Carolina. The question before the court was, does the time in another state's registry count towards the 10-year requirement? And I take it from the decision that it was favorable to PFRs, and that's the reason why you're so giddy, like a uh, little schoolgirl? Uh, no, I don't think I'm quite that giddy, but no, it was not favorable to PFRs. All right, well then, okay, well, so then that begs the question, Larry, if, if we lost, if it wasn't in our favor, why are you so giddy? Well, I'm a little bit uh, happy to start the year because I'm in recognition that this is a strict textual interpretation, and a large number of our supporters believe that textualism, and they believe that judges should not legislate from the bench. This is a classic example of textualism and, and no legislating from the bench. So our audience should just be totally enamored by this decision. Then will you allow me to read directly from the text and not do any interpretation and make my own legal opinion? Certainly. All right, so from page one, in this case, we determine whether NCGS, so that's North Carolina, what, general statute? Yes. Oh, sweet. God, I got, I guessed. 14-208.12a uh, permits removal of a registered offender from the North Carolina PFR registry 10 years after he initially registers in another state. The Court of Appeals has previously held that section 14-208.12a only permits removal of a PFR from the North Carolina registry 10 years after he initially registers in North Carolina. Is this the first time that this issue has ever been litigated in North Carolina? Uh, no, it's not. The North Carolina Court of Appeals answered this question back in 2011 in the case of N. Ree Borden. And for the uh, gurus out there, uh, I can give you a citation for that. It's 718 Southeastern 2nd at 683. And the Court of Appeals held that the time registered in another state does not, does not count toward that 10 years. I'm going to set this up. On 17 November 2000, defendant Fritchie pled guilty to sexual exploitation of a child in Colorado, pursuant to Colorado Revision Statute 18-6-403 from 1999. The trial court suspended his sentence and placed him on probation. He subsequently violated the terms of his probation and the trial court revoked the probation and activated his sentence. Fritch served eight years in prison in Colorado. Upon his release, Fritch reg Fritchie, sorry, Fritchie registered in Colorado on the 26th of August, 2008. Then in February, 2020, Fritchie moved from Colorado to Florida. Bad move. Where he registered with the Florida uh, registry office. I'm guessing that life was less than ideal in Florida. So in October of 2020, which is only uh, what, February to October, so six-ish months, Fritchie moved to North Carolina when Fritchie filed uh, his petition for removal. Well, sorry, when did he file his petition for removal in North Carolina? Well, funny you should ask that because that may have been part of the problem for him. It's pretty obvious that he moved from the two previous states in order to find a pathway off the registry. Nothing wrong with that just yet. But according to the court, on 28 October 2020, Fritchie petitioned the trial court in North Carolina under 14 to 8. 12 point B, requesting a judicial termination as to whether he must register in North Carolina. On 9th of April 2021, the trial court issued an order requiring that Fritchie register in North Carolina. He did so. Now listen to this. He did so on 12th of April 2021. Two days later, on 14th April 2021, <laughs> Fritchie filed a petition pursuant to the North Carolina removal process seeking termination of his requirement to register in North Carolina. Now, can you at least, you didn't admit the other one, can you admit that, that it's funny that he tried to get off two days later? I don't think that's funny, and I wish you would make a resolution in the new year to figure out what is and what is not funny. <laughs> that's my New Year's resolution for you, Larry, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep up with you. I'm going to be your um, accountability partner for the year. Well, if he had come to me, I would have told him this was not a wise move, but go ahead. Uh, you're, you're not going to admit that this is funny, so go ahead.
Fritchie filed this uh, petition almost 13 years after initially registering in Colorado. At the hearing on the petition, Fritchie argued that because 10 years had passed since his initial registration in Colorado, he qualified for early termination in North Carolina. Then on the 7th of May, just a month later, the trial court denied Fritchie's petition, relying on the Court of Appeals decision in in Borden, the trial court concluded that because Fritchie had not been registered in North Carolina for at least 10 years, he did not meet the requirements for early, early termination. So, Shall I continue or is that yours? I think, I think uh, uh, it was a mistake here. Yeah, you can keep going. Okay, well then the Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court's denial of the petition. Like the trial court, the Court of Appeals relied on Inree Borden in reaching its determination. Can you explain Inree Borden, please? In that case, the defendant similarly sought early termination of registration on the North Carolina registry. He argued that he was eligible for early termination because more than 10 years had elapsed since his initial registration in Kentucky. The Court of Appeals held that the plain meaning and purpose of NCGS 14-208.12.A requires that an offender be registered for at least 10 years in North Carolina before being eligible for early termination. Now, can you please admit, if we're not going to agree on what's funny, that this is a stupid decision? Uh, no, I cannot admit that. <laughs> so, of course not. <laughs> this is a decision that is very defensible from a textual point of view. According to the court, quote, we must determine whether the trial court erroneously interpreted the language of the relevant statute. Conclusions of law, such as issues of statutory interpretation, are reviewed de novo, which means a brand new review. And as you know, the term de novo means that there's no deference to the lower court's decision. And this is a defensible position. I don't like it, but no, I can't admit it. It's stupid. And you're starting off the new year the same way as always. You can justify the most ridiculous things. <laughs> well, this finding is not ridiculous uh, at all, just because you may not agree with it. It's a well-reasoned, and it's very logical. The court stated, when the language of a statute is clear and without ambiguity, it is the duty of this court to give effect to the plain meaning of the statute and judicial uh, construction of legislative intent is not required. However, when the language of the statute is ambiguous, this court will determine the purpose of the statute and the intent of the legislature in its enactment. Uh, they did say that, and a PFR who commits certain reportable offenses as defined in North Carolina General, General Statutes 14-2086B is required to maintain registration with the sheriff of the county where the person resides. And I omitted the, the citation for the remainder of it. The registration requirement generally lasts for a period of 30 years following the date of initial county registration, and that's also in the statute. Section 14-2812A provides an exception to the 30-year registration requirement and allows an offender to petition for early termination of registration 10 years after the date of initial county registration. He had not been registered in North Carolina but a matter of days before he sought removal. Can you admit that days is not 10 years? I mean, two days sounds like 10 years. They both start with T's. We could interpret those to be the same, couldn't we? No, so you can't admit that, uh, that two days is not 10 years. <laughs> Tell me about how does the 13 years not count for anything in, from Colorado? Well, so, you're, so now you're falling back on what he had done previously in the Colorado. But the North Carolina legislature chose not to provide credit for those 13 years. That's their prerogative. You do not want judges legislating from the bench, do you? Sometimes. I'll admit oh. it. Okay. Then the court stated on page five, the precise question we must answer is whether the word county in the relevant statute refers to a county of any state or though only the one in North Carolina. That is the operative question. And the court stated because the definitions under Article 27A refer specifically to counties in North Carolina, initial county registration in Section 14-208.12A must mean the first registration compiled by a sheriff in a county in the state of North Carolina. Moreover, they said the purpose of Article 27A aligns with this interpretation, initial county registration. 
Well, this is a very depressing, as usual, but uh, our first episode of the year. Because you are Mr. Doom and Gloom. I have not changed your Doom and Gloom picture since whenever, because that is just who you are. You are Dr. Doom. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. But the court went on to, to say it is an offender's registration in North Carolina, not in other jurisdictions that protects North Carolina citizens. And then they cite back to Henry Borden. And the citation doesn't need to be given. And, but they're quoting from in reboarding, allow, allowing registered PFRs to be removed from the PFR registry without being on the registry at least 10 years in North Carolina contradicts the intent of the statutes to protect the public, maintain public safety, and assist law enforcement agencies and the public in knowing the whereabouts of PFRs. That's the court saying that. I did find it interesting, though, that they stated interpreting initial county registration in Section uh, 14-20812A as requiring 10 years of registration in North Carolina is further supported by the General Assembly's silence uh, since the Court of Appeals decided in Henry Borden in 2011. What's the relevance of uh, legislative silence? Well, they might have made it a little more relevant than I would have, but it's, it's somewhat relevant because... It's telling us that for more than a decade, uh, because the legislature, presumably, they're aware of important appellate decisions. And so they've had 11 years, and they know that over the past 12 years, actually, the General Assembly has made no attempt to amend or clarify that section in a manner contradictory to the court bill's uh, reading of the, inter of the interpretation. So if this was so offensive... The PFR advocacy, they have a strong state organization in North Carolina. I mean, it is strong and beyond recognition and the leadership they have. It's just great. They've had a, more than a decade to go to the legislature and say, look, we had this interpretation. It's inconsistent with you guys' attempt of what you intended to do. And why don't we just say, with a couple of word changes, we could fix this. The reason why they didn't do that is because... There's no support for changing it. The legislature is happy with the Court of Appeals decision, and now it's been affirmed by the state Supreme Court. So this is the law of the land, not likely to change unless the legislature changes it. I see. Um, well, there you go. Anything else on that? Even any, any further thoughts on that before we would uh, close things out? Well, I really feel bad about the decision because it would be nice if people got credit in some states, they do get credit, but it's it's in the statutory scheme or has, there has been an appellate ruling saying that credit must be applied, but no state wants you to come there to escape registration. The lesson I would take from this is had this Mr. Fritchie come to me and a part of this case screening before he got turned over to the big guy, I would have told the big guy, here's where we're going to have problems. We've got an appellate decision. My job is to prepare of the case is to help the attorney, if I'm good at what I do, to spot potential minefields. And I, ha I would have known about Borden, even if the attorney didn't know about it. I'm going to say, look, the case law is against us on this case. This has already been decided a decade ago. And we're going to have trouble getting this credit. But what I would have told Mr. Fritchie is that case law is not on your side. But what we're going to try to do is posture you so you'll be the most appealing individual we, that we can come up with. So we're going to get you well-established in North Carolina. We're going to get you stable. Hopefully you can, you can buy a home or buy some real estate and have at least a year or two years of steady employment behind you, paying taxes in this community and doing something productive with your life. And we're going to make you much more appealing. If we take this to court when you've been here 30, 30 minutes, they're going to see right through it. And that would have not been very popular with Mr. Fritchie, and he would have gone down to the next law office that would have told him what he wanted to hear is, yeah, I can file the petition. We got a good shot at it. And what would be funny would be if the lawyer that did this case did not know about the appellate decision and took this man's money, if he didn't know that, that, that there was already case law against him. Can you admit that that would be funny? <laughs> sure. I'll go along with you. Well, that's what, that's what I find puzzling about our detractors out there. They criticize attorneys for being incompetent and for selling them out and for doing all these grotesque things. And then they turn around and say, well, because Larry and Andy disagree with attorneys, they shouldn't have the right to say anything. You can't have it both ways. It, either attorneys are fantastic and they know it all, or 
they deserve to be questioned and second-guessed. And most professionals, if you go to a medical doctor, it's kind of strange. They tell you to go get a second opinion. Right. Have you noticed totally. that? Yeah, I do know go, that. Yeah, they go tell you to go second opinion. Yeah, I work under the direct supervision of a very qualified attorney. Everything that I say, within reason, not everything, but most everything that I say has been vetted. We've talked about it. The attorney is comfortable with, with my stance on everything. And I find it amazing that they say that because Larry disagrees with an attorney, he shouldn't be allowed to speak. That kind of uh, I think uh, a man named Trump contradicts that. He says that he shouldn't be silenced. I, I don't think I should be silenced either. I am inclined to agree with you. So tell me then, Mr. Not Attorney, Attorney Person, why are attorneys so different than doctors in their stance on going to get a second opinion? I wish I could understand that after more than two decades doing this. They seem to be very opposed to having second opinions. Most are, not all, but many are very opposed to that. And I don't understand why, because I would, if I had the license, I would say this is merely a practice of law. Uh, we have no guarantees. And you may go out and talk to another attorney that may tell you something different. And I won't discount what that attorney says. My experience is based on my experience. That attorney may have a different outcome based on his experience, may expect a different outcome. But I do not know how you could take this person, Mr. Fritchie's money, and not have told him. Now, I don't know that he didn't tell him, but if he didn't tell him that this is a very bad case for us to take up, if he didn't do that, in my opinion, that is not very ethical. You think it's arrogance on the part of the attorneys to not try to do the second opinion kind of thing? Ego, maybe, yeah. Could, could be, but... Yeah, I would want you to get a second opinion, I think. And when you come back and say, attorney such and such told me this, I'd say, well, you know, you're going to have a choice to make. You're going to have to decide who you're more comfortable with in terms of articulating on your behalf, your mouthpiece, and who you think can do a, a more thorough job. But I'm telling you, this case is not going to go well for you unless we can position you differently. And it's still going to be an uphill climb because the court, the court of appeals is the mid-level review in North Carolina before it gets to the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court could have declined to review this case and it would have been final long before now. So Mr. Fritchie got to spend a whole bunch of money taking it up to under discretionary review to the North Carolina Supreme Court. And he got the outcome that I would have told him at the very first interview that this is where this case is likely to end up. So I'm um, then you experienced this when I was talking to you during my registry removal piece that the attorney didn't like that I knew what I knew. I was challenging his um, just challenge, you know, stepping around in his sandbox. Yes, he's the attorney, but I probably know more about registry removal stuff than he does. I don't understand it. I wish I could understand it. I, I don't and understand. In a couple pieces with some people in chat, maybe it's because they don't want to lose the money. People hate turning away business. I would tend to give that a high probability. You got overhead to cover and you're having a slow month and a guy comes in and is ready to plop $5,000, try to get up the register, maybe 10,000. Don't know what he charged him. You know, it could be all any number of things, but I think that would be a factor as well. You got, you got a mortgage to meet. You got uh, maybe an assistant to pay overhead for it and you haven't collected anything. And you know how people live month to month, even if they have great incomes, they live month to month. I have another thought just from the medical side that most people, and I, sh I don't even, whatever people going to get treatment, if they have insurance, I'm thinking that when they go get the second opinion, that there would be some level of coverage of insurance. Whereas if you go talk to two, three, five, ten lawyers, you're going to pay them most likely for some, even if it's a reduced rate of some hour of their time to get counsel. So you're going to be out of pocket for a couple hundred bucks an hour or something like that for each one that you go talk to. I never thought of it in that perspective. So there's, there's a disincentive on you because you're going to be money out of pocket just to either have confirmed or now, now you've got to make a decision if they have different opinions on, do you believe the person that is giving you the good stuff or the belief of the person that's giving you the bad opinion? Well, I think it's human nature to want to hear what you want to hear. And it's tough to hear what you don't want to hear. Me too. I don't like hearing what I don't want to hear. And I've argued with medical professionals and I've told them that they were wrong. And, and sometimes I've proven them wrong. You know, I, I think I've told you about various 
teeth issues that I know a little bit about dentistry enough to be dangerous because I managed property for a dentist uh, many, many decades ago. And, uh, and uh, I was told that I needed to extract a tooth. And I said, no, I don't need to extract that tooth. It's going to stabilize. And he said, not likely at your age. I was 30-something and I had a bicycle accident. And I said, well, I happen to believe I'm fairly healthy and I happen to believe it may stabilize. And I'm not going to let, take your advice. I'm going to follow my own advice. <laughs> and, and, uh, I, and, and when it stabilized, he, uh, the guy was named was Dr. Phil Cook. And he said, you have proven us wrong. He said, I have never seen one do what your tooth did. I said, but now you've seen it. And, and so, that's why they're always practicing. That is correct. And that's why I'm not a roofer. I'm not a construction. I don't have a construction license, but I can look at your roof. I can see the, sh I can see the sheetrock falling. I can see the deterioration. I can, see, I can t feel the shingles crack when I pick up one. And I can tell you, in my opinion, you need a new roof. I gotcha. Well, is there anything else you would like to talk about before we head out? Happy New Year, everyone. That'll be the first thing I say. Well, uh, I think that we've done enough for damage for today. So we're, we're ready for next week. We're going to be back in routine mostly from here on in to the next round of holidays, I, I hope. I believe so. I believe so. Well, thank you, sir, very much for all of this. Yeah, I didn't think that we were going to have time for that uh, video that you wanted to put in here. And it works out. Here we are at an hour. Well, again, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. I hope you had a good Happy New Year. I hope everyone had a good New Year. And we will talk to you in another week. Take care. You've been listening to FYP.